So hello, everyone. This is Tammy Bobrowski and my buddy, my friend, Andrew Dezingle is joining me and we are doing a podcast today, our late to this podcast, because we are both very, very late to the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. The Adventures of Priscilla. So I saw when I when I was trying to find this online, I, I saw a couple different like headings, like it, one was Queen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Another was The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And then I was really unsure that I had the right film and I didn't want to watch the wrong film and then start talking about <laughs> it with you and realize we watched two different films. <laughs> but The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is the movie. Tell us what it's about, Andrew. Oh, it's a road comedy with two drag performers and a transgender woman who travel across the desert to perform their unique style of cabaret and kind of about the uh, wacky adventures they get into on the way to this hotel that they're going to be performing at. Rated R, 1994. One thing right off that I liked about this movie was that it was it came in under two hours and that's that thing. I have a thing you, as you know, about movies being too long. So it had that going for it. Yeah. Even under an hour 45, which is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole different category than. <laughs> <laughs> so this had a really interesting cast. I mean, I did not, again, you're kind of throwing some of these movies at me, like, because neither of us have seen them. And so I didn't really know much going in. And so it was really fun to see who shows up in this movie. Yeah, we get the top three performers are I'm a big fan of all three. I'm mm. not I don't know what you think of them. Mm -hmm. But so we've got Hugo Weaving in the lead role as Tick slash Mitzi. And then we have Guy Pierce as Adam slash Felicia and then Terrence Stamp as Bernadette mm. and what what are your thoughts on these three? So people out there who haven't, who don't know them, <laughs> Hugo Weaving is, of course, the, um, he's the agent in The Matrix, right? Yep. Okay. He's Probably also his most famous. That's one of his most famous roles. And then yeah. he's also, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to remember the name. He's the Elf King. Is it Elrond? Elrond. There you go. Elrond with a D. Elrond, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, of the elves in the Lord of the Rings. He was good. I, I thought it was surprising to see him in this, but you know, he had work before the Matrix. He had yeah. roles, and this was just one of them. How yeah, about it's you? also interesting to see him as such a young man because yes. I've always yeah. like I guess he wasn't like that old in the Matrix movies, but he just seemed mm -hmm. older mm -hmm. than everyone. It's the, but it's a suit and tie. <laughs> yeah. And then Guy Pierce. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I don't think I knew he was Australian or even had an accent. <laughs> oh, really? I haven't seen him in a lot. And the thing that I really most remember him from is LA Confidential, where he did not have an accent. So I would say what I know him most for is Memento, mm. where he's the lead of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. It was really interesting to hear Hugo and uh, Guy Pierce. Mm -hmm talking in their natural yeah. <laughs> Australian accents. Yeah. I don't think I've ever actually seen either of them talk mm -hmm. with the accents before. And then Guy Pierce and I guess Hugo Weaving too. They both were started in television first. Oh. And then they got uh, cast in this movie. 
uh, Guy Pierce was in Neighbors, which is like a huge mm. Australian soap opera. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's they bet on two really good stars for this early indie film. <laughs> yeah. And then we get Terrence Stamp, <laughs> who I know, I don't know, I, I feel like everyone, this is the one that everyone's going to know, is that he was General Zod in Superman Neil Part 2. Zod. <laughs> That's what I was thinking through the whole film. <laughs> Neil See, for me, Zod. <laughs> what I always think of with Terrence Stamp is the limey. Oh, he, I didn't know that. What he did for his Steven Soderbergh. Okay. And that's yeah. always the movie I think of. I think it's because it's like one of the first movies I saw him in as like older Terrence Stamp. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I always associate with him. Yeah. And so this was after Superman 2 for him. I always thought that General Zod in Superman 2 looked like my dad. So he and my dad had like a similar um, look as far as like his hairline and his beard. And so I was hoping you'd say costume clothing. <laughs> my dad, my dad favors leotards and capes. <laughs> oh no, he didn't have a cape in that. Yeah, he, they yeah. had just like the fancy black billowing um, outfits there. Uh, so it was kind of funny to to see Terrence Stamp in in this role as Bernadette. And did you see who were some of the actors they were considering for Bernadette before? Oh no, I didn't read about that. Who who? So Tony Curtis was an early runner because oh. he he had done drag. Yeah, he'd <laughs> done drag in Some Like It Hot. Right. And then Tim Curry was another option mm. for, who makes sense mm-hmm. for Rocky Horror Picture Show. And then John Cleese and John Hurt were considered. Mm. And then David Bowie was considered as wow. well. Wow. I feel like this would be such a different movie with any one of those. Yeah, any one of them. I think it would have been a completely <laughs> wow. different movie. So I'm guessing that we both kind of like this. this yeah, movie. They're, yeah, this movie I really, really dug. I'm a big fan of like road, mm-hmm. road comedy trips. type movies. Yeah. yeah. And this one was very good. Yeah. I'll admit that the first time I tried to watch it this last weekend and I fell asleep about five minutes in because oh, I was no. I was very tired. <laughs> it was I think it was right after um, the Bemidji block party. And I, I had been out there all day running around in the rain. So when I got home, I was probably too tired to watch a movie. So I fell asleep right away. I was like, oh, this is not good. And then I tried to watch it um, a couple days ago. And I was like, this feels like a totally different movie <laughs> than from when I tried to watch it the other night when I was too tired. So um, after a slow start, I really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> For me, it was the beginning of a marathon of movies on a Ooh. Sunday. How many so movies did you watch that? I watched Sunday? three movies. Oh my day. gosh! It was this one, and then "What's Love Got to Do with It," the mm. Tina Turner mm-hmm. bio pick, and then this one movie called "The Offense," which is a Sydney Lumet movie, a very very dark movie. So I'm glad I started with this one, but Sounds it never good. got any better. sounds like a pretty wild variety though yeah it was hard to watch this without thinking about the similar movies that came after it like the birdcage and tu wong fu um both kind of well tu wong fu being more of that road trip kind Mm -hmm. of movie but um it was hard to not like think of those comparisons but this one i thought had a bit more of a sweetness to it and um than than the others the others there was obviously some moments of like campiness, but like the American movies just seemed more 
glitzy and um and campy and not as sweet somehow what i think i liked the most about it is that the costumes like made sense like it wasn't over extravagant Mm -hmm. costuming like it seemed like oh this is what these group of people would be able to put together Mm. except for the kind of like dreamy sequences where they have someone on top of the bus with this giant draping costume yeah it seemed very realistic is what i think i'm trying to say yeah yeah they didn't shy away from the certain circumstances you get from people who don't who who have issues with people being gay or trans so they there were a few run-ins with local small town people that it got a little scary (laughs) actually um so they didn't shy away from that but also um it didn't overshadow the movie either yeah i think all three of the performances are just so well done because they were all three very distinct characters Mm -hmm. and i heard that that was something that they dealt with when they were like testing out the actors as they had them dress and drag to just Mm -hmm. like and the personalities they adopted from dressing in drag is what they kind of became as characters Mm -hmm. in the movie where guy pierce became kind of like very competitive and like a smart aleck Mm -hmm. when he was dressing in drag and then Mm -hmm. taryn stamp became very like withdrawn from everything Mm -hmm. and hugo weaving became kind of just like a fun drunk (laughs) (laughs) and Kind of like what you were saying earlier, what I really liked is that the movie didn't shy away from like the homophobia that would go Mm -hmm. on for these characters, but it also, it wasn't a movie of portraying them as just victims Mm -hmm. of homophobia. Like these are three distinct people who homophobia is something they have to deal with, but it's not something that defines Right. the way they live their lives right um it was interesting they talk in the movie about like this um suburban because they're from sydney like they start out in sydney and they have their they have their bubble of of people their community of people there and they're they are kind of protected and they talk about that later in the film how they've left that bubble and they're out in the in the middle of the country and the difference between being out there and being safe safe in their little bubble at home so that was kind of an interesting um aspect of it but i i i think they probably i i don't i don't know australia enough to know if like um people were as tolerant or as accepting of of them as a cabaret act even just you know people just being polite and listening or like really getting into it but like like i i i was so curious how that would actually play out in this time and age where that anti-trans sentiment is pretty heavy for in, in our country just because of the certain people really pushing that as a, as an agenda so i'm mm-hmm. super curious if australia is really different than than what we're experiencing now yeah i was wondering during watching the movie the same thing mm-hmm. of where the country was at mm-hmm. at that point with dealing with trans rights and yeah so a pretty timely movie for us to yeah. be watching. Yeah. For the late to this podcast, I've tried to pick movies that are also like considered part of the canon a little bit. And I know the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is 
it's in my book 1001 mm. movies to see before you die mm-hmm. and neither of us had seen it mm-hmm. so it seemed like a good one to pick i hadn't even heard of it when you suggested it i was like yeah i i don't even know what this is about i love going into movies blind like that it was always one that i kept reading about in mm-hmm. the book and then finally this podcast seemed like the perfect opportunity to yeah <laughs> finally watch it we cannot get away from talking about this movie without talking about the songs and the soundtrack because there were a lot of songs in this yeah it's movie is almost as much of a musical <laughs> as possible without being an actual musical <laughs> without actual singing characters singing yeah for sure um, the song, the the movie opened up with that song. I've never been to me, and of course, because I watch all of my TV now with sound with uh, subtitles on, I was like looking at these lyrics. And I'm like, what is this song? <laughs> this is not a song I'd ever heard. It was just like kind of corny, but um, I think that was the effect that they were trying to go for in that opening scene. It definitely, I <laughs> felt like I don't know this song, but I know this song. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Listening to <laughs> exactly. it, exactly. There's no doubt in my mind I probably heard it in the background dozens of times. Yeah. yeah. I just never knew it. (laughs) But we got a lot of great songs on this soundtrack. And they're put into like very fun spots during the movie. Mm -hmm. Like some highlights for me, of course, was the performance of I Will Survive. That was fantastic. And then I really enjoyed the performance of Finally, because I'm a big fan of that song. And then I love the ending Throughout the whole movie, there's been the running gag of like Bernadette does want nothing to do with ABBA. (laughs) And I think it's because like it's probably a cliche of like drag performances performing ABBA songs. But at the end of the movie, they finally do perform Mamma Mia by ABBA. And I thought that was such a nice touch for the ending of the movie. I got to say, I'm I'm in the Bernadette camp with that. (laughs) Not my favorite. There is a song. What's the song? Oh, Save the Best for Last was the actual credit closing song. And I don't think and there was a one of the drag queens um, lip syncing to it at the end. Did your version have that? I don't remember that. Okay. But it was definitely during the credit roll. And I was like, which one is that? And I think it was a totally different character is um, what the credits say. So I don't know who that, I don't know who that character was or what part they had in the film. Um, But, but they were the ones lip syncing at the end for that song. And that was fun to hear that song again. Like that's, that's a big flashback for me. Oh, I forgot to talk about another bit. I really enjoyed was the lady that was running there's a lady that was going to run across the country and they kept like running into her (laughs) and she's being followed by like a little robot yeah well the funny thing about that is like she catches up to them all the time Mm -hmm. and they were on a bus (laughs) she was running uh but i think that joke petered out about halfway through like you don't i don't think yeah they 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 did it like they didn't bring it back yeah which is unfortunate. Yeah, because that would have been funny to tie that in at the end somehow. But I maybe, unless we missed it, but I don't think we did. I don't think we both missed it. Special shout out to I Love the Nightlife, because I also love the nightlife. I love to boogie. Uh, I'm okay with the nightlife. <laughs> <laughs> I like the nightlife. <laughs> I don't think I love it. Um, There was, 
yeah i don't when people lip sync is it's not always my favorite thing in the movie i guess yeah we haven't really but... talked about like with drag shows yeah. have you been to a drag show before i haven't i haven't really i've been to a couple drag shows but not very many mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'm watching a lot more drag race so i yeah. understand like good drag shows better is that that reality tv show yeah rupaul's okay. drag yeah. race yeah so seeing like actual like professional drag queens yeah. gives me has given me an appreciation of good drag performances yeah so visually i thought this film was pretty amazing the landscape was amazing when they started getting into like the desert and the the red rocks and things like that really took you into that kind of road trip crossing the country mode mm-hmm yeah, so we should mention that their bus breaks down in the oh, middle yeah. of the movie <laughs> and they're kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere. And so we get a lot of time in the desert. And I got to say, the lizard shots in this movie mm. were fantastic. So many great looking lizards going Good on. Good job, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cinematographer is Brian J. Brahini. And it doesn't, I'm not seeing very many other things for. Mm-hmm being the cinematographer for right first movie as the cinematographer so good job so speaking of the scenes out in the desert i'm the kind of person who's going to be distracted by something pretty trivial <laughs> and when Uh-oh. bernadette bernadette at one point um the bus breaks down of course in the middle of the desert bernadette uh decides to go walk and find um some help so she takes off with, with just her purse crossing the desert that bothered me so much like i don't know what supplies they had in the bus but like you bring water you bring lots of water when you're walking across the desert right i mean that's just like lesson number one so i was so that That did lead to one of my favorite lines in the movie because birdette gets picked up by a couple and then the couples meets mitzi and felicia and immediately drives away from them. And Felicia says, how many times I got to tell you green is not your color? To <laughs> <Mitzi>. <laughs> oh, that's funny. We mentioned a, a, a visual that I want to talk about that you mentioned earlier, you kind of introduced earlier, is that scene of um, both Felicia and Mitzi at one point stand on top of the bus as the bus is rolling through the desert. Um with this, these long trailing uh, swaths of fabric and they're lip syncing to an opera. And that was gorgeous. I thought, especially the there's the silver, I think um, uh, Felicia is wearing the silver gown and there's just this huge silvery swath of material flowing out behind her as the bus is, is going down the road. And, and that along with the opera was just a beautiful scene, I thought. Yeah, the the costumes in this movie mm-hmm. are so well done. Mm-hmm. And from what my roommate Joe has told me, because he watched the movie with me, is mm-hmm. he says like almost all these looks are like iconic looks for the really? drag community. Cool. Especially the flip-flop dress. What's that the flip-flop? Hugo dress? Weaving's character wears at one point, or it's like a dress made out of like flip-flops. Was it the one that he got yelled at for wearing? No, it was oh, just okay. like showed they showed up, I think, at the bar and he was wearing 
that outfit but i looked up on one of the trivia for it it was like it costs like five dollars to make that outfit (laughs) (laughs) and then for the big finale they do of their big performance i thought those costumes were fantastic as well and then the movie did end up winning the academy award for best costuming yeah at the 67th academy awards Mm -hmm. and for the longest time it was the most contemporary movie to ever win best costuming until Mm -hmm. black panther won oh because everything always goes to the historical films yep yeah so i thought that was an interesting trivia fact yeah um another really great visual is i'm I'm kind of watching a a trailer go through just to remind me of scenes (laughs) is uh towards the end when they all three kind of make a trek in full costume um up up into the hills in the in the desert of the town that they ended up in and kind of like a the kind of scene where everything is wrapping up together and people are forgiving people and uh, they're about to start a kind of a new journey but they're taking that last trip up into the mountains on foot no less and they've got all of their costumes and um uh, all the fabric is billowing out and it's just a really beautiful scene as well So we also wanted to talk about the cultural impact of this film. And we kind of talked about it as far as like some of the gowns and that those iconic looks, but there's some other interesting things I think that we can talk about. Main thing I wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. is how it was part of like this Australian new wave of movies that all came out similarly around the same time, uh, along with like young Einstein, sweetie, strictly ballroom and Muriel's Mm -hmm. wedding. Hmm. and it partially ignited the australian movie movement Mm -hmm. that was happening in the late 80s early 90s which i think is very cool i've only seen sweetie and strictly ballroom i haven't seen muriel's wedding or young einstein okay did that surge kind of continue on into the 2000s or was that just kind of a peak and then a bit of a drop or like What's what's the status of Australian film? I think it it more of gave a reputation for Australia that of like kind of more eccentric mm-hmm. filmmaking. I think it gave it more of a voice, at least for that generation of sure. Gen X or directors making movies. I did a little bit of research <laughs> in some <laughs> of our library databases while I was at work. And I found it. Yeah, I found an article from Film Quarterly that talked about um, there are three women in the film and they are not portrayed positively at all, which I think is really interesting. Um, There's so we have (laughs) we have old Cheryl, (laughs) who is uh, a woman in a bar who didn't want the Felicia or. Mitzi or Bernadette to be there and they don't want their kind there. And so she was kind of harassing them. And at the time in the movie, I thought it was funny because Bernadette comes up with a really good slam and and everybody laughs at poor old Cheryl. (laughs) It was pretty embarrassing for her. And then she loses to Bernadette in a uh, drink off. And I got, I love when there's a drink off in a movie that like, like, that's, like Indiana Jones, I think there's one. Works. Yeah, yeah, it's such a <laughs> such a great um, trope to have in a movie. Um, so I think the first woman we meet is actually Old Cheryl, and and she's not portrayed very well. 
And then the second woman we meet in the movie is Cynthia, who is um, portrayed as an oversexed stripper party girl who talks in a really funny manner and has a really odd um, sex sexual act that she is famous for um, that I don't want to get into, but um, and she's not portrayed very well either in, in this film. She's just kind of um, the, the article talks about how, how she is portrayed as oversexed, whereas old Cheryl is portrayed as de-sexed. So she doesn't really seem to have any kind of sexuality. Um, and then there was some hint at how some racial tensions in Australia with Asians um, as well during that point. So so that was kind of hinted at in that article. And then the third woman is Marion, who is, is this right? Is it is she Tick's wife? Mm-hmm. And she is, uh, I think we're led to believe that she is also gay, um, even though they have a kid together. And so she's kind of dumping the kid on him in a sense, too. So, like, I don't feel like any of those three women, as this article points out, were, like, portrayed favorably at all. So there's kind of this hint of misogyny throughout the film because of that. Yeah, I and I saw, like, the producers trying to defend it, but it wasn't a very good defense (laughs) of why they did it. Yeah, they're in the movie, like, very separately, never really mentioned again. I don't think it added to the film. I think you could have taken all three of them out. Really, maybe not Marion because of the the, the boy. The tie to Mitzi. Yeah. But you could could have taken the other two out and there you the film would be better for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so it's an interesting um part to have in this movie when everything else seemed pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I have one last thing that I want to say <laughs> that I can't believe we haven't brought up yet. Um, is the oh two things um is that felicia has a souvenir a very special souvenir and do you know what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) supposedly she carries a lot around a in a vial or in a container like a a piece of poo from one of the abba members (laughs) (laughs) abba poo is what they call it in the in the movie. Uh, carries that around for sentimental reasons or good luck. And that's pretty strange, I gotta say. I can see certain people like doing that. <laughs> like that's something they would try to get, but uh I can pass. It's a bridge too far for me as a fan <laughs> to go that far. <laughs> Another piece of trivia I wanted to mention was since they were like mostly on a bus during the movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't have like a lot of room for crew. Yeah. But apparently a lot of the crew, like mic holders or whatever, were underneath like piles of clothes in shots, <laughs> which I think is just really funny. Like holding the mic still? I think so. Let me see if I can find the exact quote here. Oh, here we go. But because the bus was such a small set, there was no room for the crew. As such, in many scenes, they are actually in shot, hiding under clothes and other props. <laughs> and then the director, Stephen Elliott, appears as a doorman in the hotel that they end up performing at. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was a younger guy? Yep. Yeah. Okay. This was, I'm glad I watched it. I think it was, it was good. I enjoyed it. And Guy Pierce was super good looking. He was younger. Holy cow. 
but yeah, Guy Pierce is really hot in this movie. Yes. Um, I think Hugo Weaving looks better, you know, as he got older. I, I would agree with that. And uh, another interesting tidbit is all three of the main characters have played a super villain in a superhero movie. Is Terrence Stamp played General Zod, as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. in Superman 2. Uh, Hugo Weaving played the Red Skull in Captain America First Avenger. And Guy Pierce plays basically the Melter in Iron Man 3. Really? Yeah. What the? His character name is Aldrich Killian. <laughs> but he was basically the Melter. The Melter. <laughs> but they couldn't call him that because it's such a ridiculous name for a character. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> this is a good choice. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I'm glad it was a hit. Yeah.